Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is a feature episode with David Hesco Wombly Wyden. Now, David has written the Edgar nominated, and at some point I may have to say Edgar winning, we will see, uh, novel Winter Counts. Uh, Winter Counts is set on a Native American reservation uh, about five hours outside of Denver, I believe. Um, and David explores a number of uh, gritty, realistic uh, aspects of, uh, of life on the reservation um, in the midst of telling a, a, a dark and compelling tale. So we had a great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. He's very articulate and uh, easy to listen to. Of course, some of that might be because he is a professor of Native American studies uh, and has had some practice, but uh, nonetheless, it was a great conversation that I think you will enjoy. Uh, before we get to that, though, I do need to tell you that uh, Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. Now, if that sounds like something you'd like, you can go to their website at downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. Uh, here from Down and Out Books to let us know about a few March releases is Lance Wright. Hi, Frank. And here we are in March with a brand new selection of crime fiction to talk about. First up, a tautly written police procedural by Ryan Sales titled, It's Ugly Because It's Personal. A routine traffic stop leaves a cop dying by the side of the road, one of the suspects dead, and two others on the run. Next is Joe Ricker's Porcelain Moths, where he examines the harsh realities of people fighting to find meaning in their existence, giving readers a portal to a world that is chillingly genuine but rarely acknowledged. Finally, we have two reissues that we hope you check out. Both second in series, Moonlight Rises, a Dick Moonlight PI thriller by Vincent Zandri, and Complicated Shadows, a Henry Malone novel by James D.F. Hanna. Thanks for having me, Frank, and we'll check in again next month. Well, thank you, Lance. Uh, uh, several good books there, uh, one of which we uh, had the author on uh, last episode, Ryan Sales. So there you go. Uh, anyway, let's move into our interview with David Heskowan-Bly-Wyden, who, uh, as I mentioned, uh, is the author of Winter Counts, uh, the Edgar-nominated novel uh, featuring Virgil Wounded Horse. Well, hello, David, and welcome to the show. Hey, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. So Winter Counts. Wow, this this book is blowing up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm just really honored. It's It's been wonderful. I mean, the crime fiction community has just welcomed me with open arms, and I'm just, uh, you know, really thrilled and, and really grateful. Well, uh, grateful. That's good to hear. Humility is awesome, but uh, thrilled you should be. I mean, the accolades for this book have been tremendous uh, from different uh, uh, review publications and you know, newspapers and all, all the standard trades have, have lauded it. And you've had a lot of your peers uh, say nice things too. People like uh, like Lou Burney and Craig Johnson and, and others have, have lauded this as well. 
Yeah, I was luck, fortunate enough to meet uh, Lou Bernie at the BoucherCon conference, the, the last one that was held in real time. And uh, he's just been a wonderful guy. And Craig Johnson, I've kind of known over the internet for a while. And just, yeah, I mean, so I had folks from the, the native literature community like Tommy Orange and Louise Erdrich who were kind enough to give a blurb and some praise and then folks from the crime fiction community. So yeah, it was just really nice to have these people, you know, kind of step in and and give a word of support. Well, as you alluded to earlier, the crime fiction community, the mystery community is actually very, very familial and very welcoming and, and supportive of each other. And and I, I don't see a lot of people uh, begrudge anybody their moment to shine. In fact, they tend to celebrate that. Yeah, I, I <laughs> it's been great. I mean, I've gotten literally hundreds of messages from folks congratulating me on various things. And yeah, I mean, there there really hasn't been any of the pettiness that I'd heard about. It's just been really just wonderful folks, you know, supporting each other. I mean, so I'm I'm with you. You know, we it's just great to celebrate each other. So I'm again just grateful. Well, I've long held that, uh, unlike some businesses and some uh, other endeavors in life, uh, this is not a zero sum game. Um, obviously, you you have to write a great mystery or a great book to get celebrated like that. Uh, but it doesn't hurt at all to also write something that's a little bit different than than the norm. And uh, at the risk of uh, being the middle-aged white guy who steps in it, um, I will say that you've got that going on. You've got something a little bit different. You're not writing about a grizzled uh, 20-year cop in New York who's working one last case before his partner gets killed and he goes on a revenge trip. You know, <laughs> this is not what Winter Counts is. It's it's very different and it allows people to not just enjoy uh, a great piece of crime fiction, but to maybe enter a world that they haven't been in very often. So the question I'm sure you've answered a bunch of times since this uh, book came out, uh, what motivated you to write in that world? And actually, what that could you tell the listeners what that world is? Sure. So Winter Counts is set on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. So I am an enrolled citizen of our nation. In our language, it's called the Sichangu Lakota Nation. In English, it's the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. And so even though I grew up in Denver, uh, my mother grew up on the reservation. I spent a lot of time there growing up. I still go there with my boys a couple of times a year. And so I, I wanted to write about it. Uh, but more than that, I wanted to write about some of the legal and political issues that are not well known. Um, so in my day job, I'm a professor of Native American studies and political science. And so I've been aware for a long time of the broken criminal justice system that exists on Native reservations. And we can certainly get into that later, but but there's just this huge gap in the laws, something called the Major Crimes Act, which means that if a felony crime is committed on a native reservation, native authorities can't prosecute it. They have to send it over to the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. But the feds are declining to prosecute about 30 to 40 percent of major felony crimes, which is, of course, outrageous. And most people don't know about this. It's, it's, it's this really unknown fact about native life, and it contributes in a really bad way to the quality of life on native reservations because you have murderers, rapists, child abusers walking around. When the feds don't prosecute uh, these folks, they release them. And that, of course, is where people like my protagonist come in, Virgil Wounded Horse, who is a hired enforcer. So if you can't get justice from the feds 
and somebody hurt your child, you might hire somebody like Virgil Wounded Horse to go out and beat the tar out of somebody for a fee. So to kind of get back to the, your larger question, I wanted to write about the broken criminal justice system on Native reservations, but there are a lot of issues that I feel folks who aren't Native just aren't aware of, like our healthcare system, which is also substandard. The fact that we have a problem getting decent, healthy food on our reservations. Uh, our juvenile justice system is a mess. So I, I chose to, to write this book, first of all, obviously, to tell a great story, and I hope I've done that but also to bring some attention to these issues and to try to educate and inform folks as, as well as entertain them. So I'll stop there. Well, there's the magic trick, right? And, and in a good way, and uh, you know, you can enjoy a story uh, and, and be compelled by the characters and the situations. And, and maybe you learn something along the way. And, and obviously that doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's, it's part of the writer's craft. I think science fiction does that really well too, uh, but but mystery and crime fiction is a great vehicle for, you know, social commentary wrapped up inside of a good story. So we, Virgil Wounded Horse, you know, I mean, the hero of the story, but kind of an antihero in some ways, if you uh, you could you could say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I grappled with the morality of vigilantism. Vigilantism. I, I, look, I don't support it. I mean, I live in Denver, Colorado, and if a crime happens here, you should not take the law into your own hands. You should call the police and let them handle it. They're, they're trained to do it. They're good at what they do. It's their jobs. But on the reservation, we've got a whole bunch of issues. First of all, tribal police are, are very few and far between. Uh, the, the Rosebud Reservation, which is about the size of Delaware, I think we have maybe 15 officers total. And, and they're not on all at one time. Obviously, they work in shifts. So we don't have the numbers that we need just in terms of law enforcement, you know. And, and so, you know, vigilantism, I, I, I can't say that I condone it. But on the other hand, I understand it. And I, I, I wanted to kind of lay out the issue for which there's not necessarily a, a clear answer. So he is an antihero. And he does grapple, Virgil Wounded Horse does grapple with the morality of his chosen profession. And so I don't think there's a, a bright line answer here. Well, it, it, it's realistic in, in, in that, uh, and I don't know if it's realistic in, in reality or not. I, I, I don't have any experience in, in that. Um, but it's realistic in the human sense in that if there's a need, uh, someone will fill that need. And here clearly there's a need for justice that's, that's not being met and people are going to find a way to meet that need. I mean, it's, it's how the mafia came into, <laughs> into being in, in Italy. And so it's, I mean, it's human nature to, to fill that vacuum. Um, is this based a little bit on, uh, on some level of, of, of real life in, in that, that dynamic does it, or has it in the past existed? Yes, very much so. I, this is probably the question that I get asked more than any other, uh, which is, are there actual hired vigilantes, hired enforcers on native reservations? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, now, not every reservation, um, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on all native nations out there. There are about 600 in the U.S., and I, I only can speak for the Lakota people, and even then only our particular branch of the Sichangu, but I, I know for a fact that they do exist. So this is very much based on real life. And I should give a shout out to my friend uh, Craig Johnson in the Longmire series. In his uh, show Longmire, there is a native enforcer as well. I think he's called Hector. I don't know if he appears in the books or not, but in the TV series, 
there is. Now, I didn't get the idea from him. I'd actually published this in a short story before Hector ever appeared uh, on the Longmire uh, TV show. But it, it's it's not new to point out the existence of hired vigilantes on native reservations. So it is a fact of life on many, if not most, reservations. Well, I definitely want to circle back and talk about these realities, um, but I want to stick with uh, Virgil for just a moment. You know, he's doing this as uh, essentially as a mercenary. Uh, you know, he's doing it for money. And then in in this book, uh, it becomes a little bit personal. Yeah. So Virgil, you know, I won't give away too many spoilers here, um, but it, it's not too much of a spoiler to note that Virgil is the guardian of his nephew, Nathan, because uh, Nathan's parents have, have died and uh, and he's 14 in the book. And uh, so Virgil looks after Nathan and Nathan uh, does get involved with drugs. And so Virgil wants to go after the people that are bringing heroin to the Rosebud Reservation. So he is a mercenary, but absolutely right. It, it becomes personal for him. And that and that's really the, the driving conflict of the book is, you know, can Virgil catch these folks that are bringing this, this terrible poison to the reservation? So absolutely, it gets personal for him. And he kind of, uh, he sounds like he kind of has, uh, you know, multiple uh, adversaries, obviously the people that he's hired to go and, and enforce upon, but I can't imagine that uh, the, the tribal police are, are too keen on what he's doing or, or are they? So in the book, you know, the tribal police are, are not really involved all that much. Virgil kind of goes at it as a, as a solo um, he certainly does have multiple adversaries, though. I don't want to give away too much in the book. But yeah, there are certainly multiple layers of, of bad folks. And so he has to contend with them. And I should note as well that he also grapples with, again, his profession of being a hired vigilante. He realizes that he, he starts to enjoy the beatings that he puts on people. He just likes them for their own sake. And he realizes he has a problem. And he says at one point in the book, I, I know I've got a problem, but there's not really a support group for hired vigilantes <laughs> that like beating up people. So he, he kind of, you know, he ponders, he reflects upon the problems that he's having. He, he knows that he's kind of broken inside and, and he wants to quit being a, a, a vigilante. Uh, but on the other hand, he wants to do the right thing. So there are a lot of layers going on in the book, not least of which is his identity so in the book, Virgil is an Ayesca, which is, in our language, um, it means half-breed. It's kind of a slur for half-breed. So Virgil not only has this conflict of trying to stop heroin from coming to the reservation, but he's also grappling with his own identity. So he's, he's part Lakota and, and part white. And, you know, there's some discrimination against him for that. And, and so he's struggling to come to terms with his own native identity so there are, you know, there are different layers in this book. There's, you know, the the theme of identity, there are the political and legal issues, and then of course there's the story of of the heroin ring, and then there are even some family issues. So I guess it's fair to say there's a lot going on in the book. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a very, very white uh part of the Pacific Northwest. And so I wasn't exposed uh and didn't interact with a lot of people who looked different than I did. Uh, and the first biracial person I met was uh, a kid. He was uh, half black, half white. And uh, my dad actually put it into perspective for me in a way that, that always stuck with me. Um, 
because the kid was getting in a little bit of trouble. He was kind of angry. And I, I said something about he was a jerk or something. And my dad was like, well, let me ask you a question. You know, when white people look at Anthony, what do you think they see? They see black. When black people look at Anthony, what do they see? They see white. And so he's getting it, you know, that, that bias, that uh, racism from both sides. It's like you don't belong to either. Uh, and either side, you know, ever, both sides see the opposite. And so that always kind of stuck with me is, boy, that that is a, that'd be a tough position to be in. And is is Virgil experiencing that from from the white and the native side, or is it more one-sided? Yes, that's 100% the dynamic that Virgil is describing in the book, and even his nephew Nathan as well. Um, he's absolutely getting exactly what you described. He he doesn't necessarily fit in in the the white world or in our language the Washichu world, uh, but but he gets some some discrimination on the reservation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because even on the reservation there are these sort of complicated dynamics and politics, and so he feels that he doesn't fit in. You know, in either place. And the obvious question that I often get is. Was that your experience, Dave? And and the answer is yes. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I dramatize it to make a point in the book, but certainly, I I felt that growing up, and so my own experience is is informed. My my own experience informs the writing of the book, but it's it's obviously not a carbon copy. And no, Virgil is not based on me uh, at all, except you know aspects here and there. As a professor, you probably beat up a few term papers pretty badly on occasion, though. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 about as far from a hired vigilante as you can get, you know. Uh, uh, but you know, I did bring in some bits of my own life. So I I in my own life, I'm a, a dad. I've got two boys. They're a uh, uh, 13 and 16, and of course, I brought in sort of my fatherhood experience into you know, Virgil's experience of raising his 14-year-old nephew. So that that is probably where my own experience crept into the book the most. Uh, we've talked a bit about life on the reservation. And, and of course, that's a sweeping statement to make because every reservation is different. But there are some things that are are, are pretty common across the country and, and certainly uh, aren't are pleasant things. Um, uh, you know, I, I told you I I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and near Spokane. And so there's a reservation, you know, the Spokane tribe. And then here in central Oregon, there's Warm Springs reservation. And my wife taught at a a school where a lot, a lot of the school population was from the reservation. And it it always struck me how there were some very interesting politics uh, going on at the, at the reservation level. Um, I encountered that as well in my police career, talking to, to tribal police officers, uh, had a couple go through the academy with me, and occasionally we we would come across each other professionally. It's it's like a small town dynamic with some more twists thrown in. I, I guess is the best I can do. I'm hoping you can do better. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, my reservation, even though it, it covers a fairly large area geographically, um, I think living on the res. Uh, uh, is only about I want to say ten thousand, maybe fifteen thousand people total. So yes, it is like a small town. But another dynamic in there is just the lack of resources. The fact you know the unemployment rate on my reservation is eighty five percent. That's eight five. So there just aren't wow. jobs. Um, it is it is it is really problematic. And so when you have a lack of a scarcity of resources, 
you know, it kind of creates this dynamic that people get jealous. Like, why does he have that? And I don't. Why does she have that? And so that is an unfortunate part, I think, of any uh, community that is economically challenged. Then you have all of these laws that are layered on top of Native communities. You know, we have we have all of these laws that don't exist in, say, your typical small town in Kansas. You know, we have laws that govern, you know, our educational system, our healthcare, everything. So it, it, it's a complicated place. You know, if, if you think just the average small town, you know, brings up lots of challenges, a reservation is that times times 20. So absolutely, there are many different challenges that Native nations are facing today. Uh, so for this next little bit here, I'm going to expose my ignorance quite a bit. So uh, fair warning. Um, but just some questions that come to mind that I think might be of interest to, to listeners. Um, how intact is the the tribal government system on the reservation? I mean, the tribal council and, and so forth. Is it uh, ceremonial? Is it uh, very, very actively governing somewhere in the middle? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So tribal governments are fairly functional. Okay, if I if I see where you're going with this. And the reason is that I think people don't really understand this, but native nations are are sovereign, by which we mean independent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, it was understood that native nations would be separate countries within the boundaries of the United States of America. And people don't get this that the USA actually has 577 or so independent countries that exist within the borders of the United States. Now, it gets complicated here, and this is the professor and me talking, because there have been a number of laws passed by Congress and a number of Supreme Court decisions that have limited the independence and the sovereignty of Native nations. So the term we use is we call Native nations semi-sovereign or semi-independent. So Absolutely, tribal governments operate in a fully functional way to create laws for their citizens. Now, having said that, the U.S. Congress has placed a whole bunch of limitations on how far tribal governments can go. So you see, it's it's a complicated issue, and there's not really a simple answer. We're independent, but we're kind of not. You know, so again, it's it's just complicated. Well, and anything complicated you know, resides in the gray. And that's where a lot of interesting things can happen. Uh, interesting in a bad way in real life, interesting in a great way when you're talking about fiction. Um, and, you know, I, my experience with the tribal police uh, in, in my career was always that uh, uh, I always had a great relationship with the, the individuals that I, I knew. Uh, but talking to them after their initial uh, police training at the academy and and, and a very industry minimum required amount of in-service training, the lack of funds, uh, frankly, uh, kept them from from having uh, as much training as they would have liked. Uh, do you know, is this the case uh, on, on your reservation as well? Is there a, uh, not a lot of training dollars there? You know, I don't pretend to be an expert on, on tribal police. Um, I, I was going to do a ride-along with them, but then the, the pandemic hit. But I, I, I think I can answer that generally. Um, there is a huge uh, lack of funding for tribal law enforcement officers. Now, there was a law passed about 10 years ago, the Tribal Law and Order Act, that helped to a degree in this. But throughout the justice system in Native nations, there's just a lack of funding, both for police officers, tribal police officers, 
uh, judges, tribal court systems. It, it's just every step of the way, there is a lack of funds. Now, the exception to this is there are a handful of nations, native nations in the U.S. that are wealthy because of a sort of a accident, lucky accident. Like, for example, maybe they're one of the reservations near a big city, so they could start a casino that's right by a big city. Uh, there's one in Minnesota that, that you know, they make billions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my nation's casino, the closest town is Valentine, Nebraska, population 2,000. You know, so a handful <laughs> of Native nations, I should say, are, are doing well. But that hurts us as well because I get this stereotype all the time because people hear about these Native nations with casinos. They think we're all fabulously wealthy and they think that like we get all these subsidies from the government. Like I've I, I've heard we're supposed to get a monthly check from the U.S. government and free college tuition. I'm here to tell you that's not true. I wish it were true. I'm still waiting on that monthly check. <laughs> so yes, to, to come back to your point, circle back. Absolutely, there's a lack of funding for 99% of Native nations when it comes to law enforcement. Uh, and, and the the social dynamic, it, it it feels like there's a push pull, and this is an outsider, you know, uh, talking. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's a push pull on a social level in that you should be loyal to your people and stay on the reservation, and yet people sometimes look at the eighty percent, you know, unemployment rate that you're you're talking about, and think to themselves, "Wow, I can move away and I can." get a job how, how crazy of an idea is that and so you know those people are both like maybe resented and you're envious of them at the same time sort of that that's a weird dynamic to be to see you know to have going on in, in, in any depressed neighborhood and and certainly i think in a larger uh, context of a, of a of a reservation am i anywhere near anything truthful or am i perpetuating uh, uh stereotypes that don't exist no, you're 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 dead on. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, in fact, there's even a section in the book where Virgil is kind of doing some internal monologue, and he says, "You know, why do I stay here with our our broken down houses and our unpaved roads and the crime and the gangs? Like, why do I stay here?" But then he's like, "Well, I stay here because of you know our culture, our people, you know, the dancers." Um, I mean, in real life, I can tell you that there is this tension. Um, I live in Denver, Colorado. My nation is about a five-hour drive. Um, I would love to go back there. I would. But there, 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 first of all, there's very little housing on the reservation. Housing is tough to come by. And obviously, there are no jobs. You know, so, so yes, there's, there's everybody has to make their own decision. Um, a lot of people stay on the reservation, even though there aren't economic opportunities because they don't feel comfortable. There's an incident that I mentioned in the book that is not fictional. Um, So a a number of native kids from the Pine Ridge Reservation, which is right next to ours, um, they they were on the honor roll at their school. And so they won a free trip to Rapid City, South Dakota, which is the big city in South Dakota. You know, I think it's what, 50,000 people. Mm -hmm. They got a trip to go watch a, a minor league hockey game. So these little native kids in middle school were so excited and they went to a hockey game and they were watching the hockey players, you know, skate around. And these people, you know, these white guys on the, the, the tier above them in the corporate boxes saw like 25 little native kids watching a game. And they poured beer on their heads. They actually stood over them and poured beer over all of the kids and, and mocked them and shouted at them. And uh, so the kids left in shame. Um, that's in the book. That, that really happened. Now, you get an incident like this, and you can see why a lot of Native people are like, I'm not going out there. 
You know, mm-hmm. why, why would I do this to myself? I'm going to stay on the reservation with my own people where nobody's going to pour beer on me and call me the prairie N word, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, again, it's complicated. I know I've used that word yeah. a lot here today. Well, it's because it is, and you're, you're being honest about it. I mean, uh, a lot of things in life are complicated and I think we've become a nation that, that wants simple answers and simple solutions and, and those don't work for complicated situations. Uh, so I, I think you're appropriately using that term in its frequency. Um, you know, when people uh, think of stereotypes and they think about any any sort of uh, substance abuse by Native Americans, I mean, alcohol seems to be the one that would come to mind more quickly. It's the, the, the stereotype uh, that exists. But particularly in, in, in recent years, uh, uh, the drugs and particularly heroin uh, has has been a problem in that community as, as well, which I'm assuming is, is one of the reasons why you chose to, to, to go that route in the story. Yeah. Let me, let me address that. So, you know, yeah, look, there obviously is a stereotype that native people have a problem with alcoholism. I made the decision when I wrote this book that my hero, my protagonist, Virgil Wounded Horse would not be an alcoholic. Now in the book, he, he mentions that he'd had a problem with it, but in, in the book, he, he never takes a drink. And, and I made that decision very consciously uh, just because I decided that I didn't want to write into that stereotype. I wanted mm-hmm. Virgil to be, you know, clean and, uh, you know, but I wanted it to be realistic. I didn't want to be a Pollyanna. Of course, like in any community reservation or, you know, off reservation, there are folks that have problem with, problems with alcohol. And it would be foolish to deny that and write a story that, that doesn't say that, you know, there aren't problems with substances everywhere, but I made the decision to, to not have Virgil take a drink in the book. In fact, there's even a scene in there. He goes to a bar and he, he orders a beer, but he, he pushes it away. Now, as far as harder drugs, meth is the really the scourge of my reservation. Whenever I drive back there, you'll see houses every once in a while that are just completely boarded up because they've been used to cook meth um, and they become an, un, you can't have, inhabit them after that. And so I, I originally, in early draft of this book, I had it uh, uh, with meth as the drug of choice. But for plot reasons that are not really interesting, I changed it to heroin, which is becoming a bigger issue on many reservations. But I would have to say that methamphetamine is, is still the number one enemy. And I'm just completely anti-drug. And if it's not clear to folks listening in, there's a strong anti-drug message in this book. Yeah. In in my career... Uh... I started in the early nineties. Uh, that's when meth exploded and, and near the end of my career was, it was opioids and heroin that were really be- becoming the bigger issue. And, and I wonder, um, if, uh, certain places lag behind. Uh, I know we always did like a year or so behind California and trends, for instance, or if also the fact that you know, methamphetamine is probably the most cost effective street drug out there uh in terms of what it costs and what you get for the for the the bang for the buck so to speak Uh, i wonder if that also might be a factor of it being being popular yeah i i i don't know why meth is is really hitting our community so hard i mean i i just i really don't have the knowledge i suspect yours is about a billion times better than mine but but i think it can be made more easily right with Mm -hmm. fairly commonly available ingredients, whereas heroin and op- opioids, I think, have to be shipped in. Is that right? 
You got to have the poppy. Yeah. I mean, you got to have yeah. the opioid. Uh, whereas, yeah, you can make methamphetamine from, you know, as long as, long as you have the base chemicals and those are available uh, domestically and over the counter, uh, uh, yeah. you know, with some difficulty. But it is a scourge wherever it's happening. Um, I never saw a drug that could take a beautiful woman and, and turn her into a skeleton more quickly and more devastatingly than, than methamphetamine. I many times was handed a driver's license and looked down at a picture of a very attractive person and looked up at, you know, uh, something from a heavy metal record uh, cover, mm. you know, and it, it's just, mm. a, it's a pretty brutal drug. Her heroin is uh, brutal in other ways, but uh, not quite as much in, in that fashion. Mm. Yeah. That sounds right. <laughs> Again, I, you know, in the book, it's, it's just, I, I wanted, I didn't, I didn't want to write into the stereotype, but mm -hmm. obviously drugs are a problem everywhere. And when you take these terrible drugs in a community that's already struggling financially, you're just layering on misery. So, you know, there are a lot of issues in the book. Um, you know, and I, again, we, you know, we could certainly use help on reservations to fight this problem as, as I suppose could every community. We will get back to our interview with, uh, David Wyden in just a minute. Uh, but this is the time in the show where I like to turn things over to the experts. And in the past, those experts have included, uh, readers and bookstore employees, particularly those who work at the specialty shops that feature a lot of, uh, crime fiction on the shelves. Uh, and of late I've been turning to other writers because I'll tell you folks, uh, mystery authors, no good mystery. We might have a blind spot where our own is concerned, uh, but we can certainly tell you which other ones are definitely good. And so uh, here to share some of their picks with you uh, are Julie Holmes, uh, Martin Roy Hill, and Sandra Wells. Hi, I'm Julie Holmes, the author of Murder in Plain Sight, and I just have a book recommendation if you're looking for something new. A fellow author, his name is Brian Luderman, writes the Penn Wilkinson series, starting with Downfall, uh, Windfall, Freefall, Nightfall, and Deadfall. Penn Wilkinson is a paraplegic uh, lawyer who uh, gets caught up in all kinds of uh, nastiness. So that's, if you're looking for something different, check them out. Hi, this is Martin Hill. I'd like to recommend a book to you all called They Thought They Were Free. Uh, it's a great book written in the years after World War II and examines why the Germans followed Hitler. And for the most part, they thought they were free. They didn't realize what was going on. They didn't realize they were living in a dictatorship. Check it out. They thought they were free. Hi, this is Sandra Wells, and I'm coming to you from Tennessee. I'm an author. I have four books that have been published this year. They're a, a New Hampshire crime series, but I want to recommend a book for my friend Ed Green. He uh, wrote about the life of Delta Dawn from the Tanya Tucker song, and I would like to recommend it's a good read. Uh, 
All right. Thank you, folks. That's some uh, good recommendations. I hope you check those out if any of them appeal to you. Uh, And now let's get uh, right back into the second half of our interview with David Wyden. You know, the the uh, thing that struck me when you were talking about uh, the the middle school kids who had beard dumped on them. I mean, that, that just absolutely baffles me why why people would do that to anyone, particularly kids. Um, but it really brings home that that idea that uh, we need to be honest about the fact that uh, not only does racism exist in our country, but uh, it, it exists lo- locally wherever we are in some fashion or another, whether it's explicit, open, or if it's you know just I- implicit uh, biases that we may not even be aware that we that we have uh, that don't come to the surface until we're faced with a situation. And then we realize, well, wow, that was kind of a racist thought. Why did I think that? Because I think when people hear racism, they immediately get on the defensive because they think KKK and, you know, white supremacy and, and sure, that's the one form of it, but it can be more insidious and more subtle. Um, Although dumping beer on a bunch of middle schoolers is far from subtle. Well, the unfortunate postscript to, the beer being dumped on little kids incident is authorities, you know, they had video cameras at the security cameras at the hockey arena, and they were able to identify sort of the leader, the the person that dumped the most beer and instigated the whole thing. And, and so they arrested him and they charged him with something really minor, like disorderly conduct or something. And they, but he, he took the trial and surprise, surprise, he was found not guilty. So there you go. I mean, so it's just an ugly story from start to finish. Disorderly conduct is an undercharge. I mean, at least in my city, that my state, the appropriate charge there would have been assault. But uh, wow, I'm I'm speechless, David. I don't know what to say. Uh, uh, The last several years have been very eye-opening for me, having a lot of different conversations with with people and uh, about this subject. And you know, when you grow up in a very isolated sort of place where you know you're not interacting with people that people are racist against so you don't realize that racism exists and then then I look back and I think of some of the things people said or did and I realized how racist or homophobic that particular conversation was or that joke or whatever but there was nobody there that was a direct target of it so it didn't seem like it right and then you go out in the wide world and you talk to people who were targeted uh, either maliciously or recklessly with that kind of things and it just I mean, it, it's, it's been an eye opener. It blows your mind. And I, I guess I would say that I would think that your, your book could have that impact on, on some readers. Well, thank you for the kind words. And, and obviously, you know, I, I've said this again and again, look, writers, we want to tell a great story. Okay. And I, I, I've heard from many readers, I guess they found the book to be a page turner and really gripping, but I also wanted to open some eyes. Um, the book was on a number of bestseller lists. Uh, you know, it, it, sold, I don't know, 50,000 copies or something. And, and, uh, and, and I've spoken to, you know, dozens of book clubs and such. And I get this thought, you know, that sentiment all the time. They're like, look, we love this book so much because not only was it a great read, but we didn't know about this stuff. You know, I grew up in, you know, whatever, Minnesota, not me, that's what they tell me, or, or, or Oregon or Kansas or whatever. And we just didn't know about this. And so your book really brought home some issues and some sentiments and what life is like on a native reservation. And so I'm just really gratified that in my small way, I could kind of open some eyes. Now, in the bigger effect, I will tell you 
that I've been contacted by a former U.S. attorney, some lawmakers, and a dean of a major law school. And they are saying, look, we need to see if we can't get this law, the Major Crimes Act, which creates these terrible outcomes, get it either amended or even struck down. And so if I can help to start a dialogue, you know, well, then, wow, that, that's just a, a dream come true, you know, to, to entertain people, but also hopefully get, get folks talking. So, so again, thank you for the, the observation. Well, that's what, what art can do sometimes. It can start conversations that, that create action and, and it could be the catalyst. And that, that's pretty awesome. I hope that that goes further. So uh, some unrelated stuff here that uh, just is personally interesting to me. I don't know. Some people might turn off the interview at this point because they don't share my interests. But you said you uh, you, you live in the Denver area. Um, are you uh, a hockey fan there? Yeah, I mean, sure, sure. I mean, I I, I love the Avalanche. I have to admit, I, I don't really understand hockey <laughs> the way that I do uh, football <laughs> and baseball. Um, mm-hmm. So, being a lifelong Denver resident, I've I've always loved the Denver Broncos. They're they're not doing so well right now. The Colorado Rockies, uh, they just covered their best player, you know. So, I like hockey. Uh, I I can't say that I understand the the nuances of it. So, yeah, yeah, big big sports fan. I've got two boys. One of them loves football. The other, not so much. Well, when I get out to Denver, we'll go to a go to an Avs game, and I'll have you an expert by the end of the first period. I promise. That'd be great, man. <laughs> so I'm a Flyers fan myself, and so here's hoping that it's uh, Colorado, Philadelphia in the final. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll go. Oh, I'm down with that. Uh, I have been to your city, and not just the airport. I actually spent a week there doing uh, for the Denver PD. They had a uh, assessment center for their lieutenant's promotion, and I was one of the uh, assessors for that. And and uh, beautiful city. I was very impressed with uh, the downtown area, and uh, uh, you have these interesting things that I don't know exist all over the country. I certainly haven't seen them in the places I've been. And that is your crosswalks. You have diagonal crosswalks down at the major intersections downtown. <laughs> Ah, yes. It's called the Barnes Dance because it was developed by somebody uh, named Barnes. And so, yeah, the diagonal crosswalks is a a unique feature of Denver. And, you know, I should point out, too, I don't mean to bring everything back to my book, but I I, three chapters in Winter Counts do take place in Denver. So I just wanted to write about Denver. So I built in a a sort of a plot twist curve that would bring uh, Virgil and his ex-girlfriend Marie to Denver. And so I wrote three chapters, and it was just such a pleasure to write about my hometown because I brought in a lot of Denver lore, and it would probably only really appeal to to people that that grew up in Denver. But if you're if if you're a Denverite, there is stuff that that you're going to pick up on. So I built that in very consciously. Like they visit a famous restaurant we have out here, this kitschy, tacky restaurant called Casa Benita. Um, so I built in a lot of Denver stuff, which was fun. I built in a lot of crime fiction stuff for crime folks who may be listening to this. I built in two hidden tributes to uh, crime writers. I won't reveal who they are, but if you're a crime fan, you might be able to figure that out. And then for for the native readers who have also really loved this book, I, I built in a whole bunch of stuff that if you're native, you're going to pick up on it, but otherwise you're not. Uh, just as a quick example of that, there the character Nathan, who's 14, makes a friend in, in juvenile jail, and and the the, the friend wants to be called Snagmore. Um, now, if you're native, this is hilarious because to snag is a native slang term that means to date another member of the opposite sex. So there's a lot of like native references, crime references, and 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 Denver references. So I 
I just had a whale of a good time writing the book. Yeah, it's like uh, secret codes for different people there that you got going mm-hmm. on. Um, hey, the other thing that's interesting to me that uh, that we have been talking about uh, is the native portion of your background. Um, uh, growing up as a kid, I uh, idolized, uh, you know, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, and but I don't really have a lot of a background in terms of how large the Lakota Nation is. How many different uh, uh, pieces to that greater nation are there? Yeah. So, so, you know, first of all, the epigraph to the book is, is from uh, a sitting bull. And so I'm looking at it uh, uh, right now. The epigraph is, it is not necessary for eagles to be crows. Tatanka Ayotake, which is uh, Lakota for sitting bull. So to answer your question, so the the Lakota nation is, is part of a, a sort of a larger confederation, which many people call the great Sioux nation. And so there are sort of three main branches, the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Nakota. All speak the same language with some minor variations. And then with each of, within each of those, there are different divisions. Like in the Lakota branch, there are a number of separate subnations. So the whole thing is we, we spread out over, you know, as far as like South Dakota, even parts of Wyoming, up into Minnesota, and so, yeah, for, for a while there, you know, the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota were, were you know, the, the leading group of natives in sort of the, you know, what we now would call the, the upper Midwest. And they were very much the, the one of the, the, the last nations to, to resist colonization. Have you been to the uh, Crazy Horse uh, monument there? I have. Um, so, yeah, I mean... <laughs> So the the issue of Mount Rushmore and and the Crazy Horse Monument is is once again complicated. I'll bring that word up yet again, because the Black Hills, the mountains of South Dakota, are are, are sacred to us. That's that's our origin story. Um, I mean, it would be the equivalent for Christians to Jerusalem, I guess. And 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 so the Black Hills are are, are quite sacred to us. And indeed, in the Treaty of eighteen sixty eight, you know, a sacred promise was made. You know. A treaty is even stronger than a federal law, and uh, and it said these sacred lands shall be yours forever. That treaty lasted about a year, and the U.S. government broke it because they discovered gold in there. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, we have to follow the laws, follow the laws, the laws. You know, Constitution is sacred. Treat, you know, laws are sacred. Well, okay, sure, let's let's follow the laws that were made. Let's honor those treaties. So Mount Rushmore is particularly complicated for us because it's a um, you know, kind of a blemish on what we consider to be our sacred mountains. Now, the, the Crazy Horse Monument people, natives have different feelings about it. Some say that we should have just left the mountains alone. You know, others say, no, it's good to educate. So again, there's not a, a good answer there. If people are visiting South Dakota, the, the place to visit is the Wounded Knee Massacre site. That everyone is agreed upon. It's this very sad sacred place to us where 200 mainly women and children were absolutely massacred by the U.S. Army. Uh, And indeed, part of Winter Counts, I don't want to give away spoilers, there's a very important plot device that involves the Wounded Knee Massacre site. And I I urge people to visit that because they were buried in a mass grave. I mean, the the U.S. Army literally just chased after little kids and shot them in the head. Uh, Just It was just absolutely a massacre. And that's considered to be sort of the end of Indian sovereignty after wounded knee it was clear that to natives that the american government would would murder every native if they had to and so that that's the one to visit i will say visit crazy horse monument sure 
but take a drive about 150 miles uh, south and, and visit the Wounded Knee Massacre site. Good advice. Good advice. You know, I, I really enjoy hosting this show. I enjoy getting to talk to to the different authors and particularly on these feature episodes, getting into things that we don't have time to get into on the on the open and shut episodes. Uh, but I got to tell you, uh, I'm going to leave this one feeling both exhilarated and a little bit shitty, <laughs> oh. <laughs> simply because it, it. If you look at the history of the U.S. government and its interaction with the uh, with the various Native peoples since the inception of English colonies, it's a pretty horrible history, and uh, it's, it's one that you know. I don't know that as a nation we've entirely faced with honest eyes. Uh, we tend to, I mean, for for George Armstrong Custer to be considered a hero in the in any Indian conflict is pretty endemic of of what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, you know, let me let me let me say this. Look, my intent here is not to make anybody feel shitty. You know, I teach Native American studies, and I often have you know white students come up to me, and they're like, "I feel so sorry. I feel so guilty." And I'm like, hey, look, the, the the point of this class, and indeed the point of my book, Winter Counts, is not, you know, to engender feelings of of guilt or remorse, but it's to educate. We can't mm-hmm. change the past, but obviously we can certainly change what we do in the future. But of course, I agree with you. The history of the United States towards Indigenous people is is a shameful one. If if listeners want a good nonfiction book, let me recommend uh, my friend David Troyer's book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. It was uh, nominated for the National Book Award, I think in uh, 2019, I want to say. It is absolutely superb. It's very readable. And it will give you a sense of, you know, the history, but in in a very, you know, readable way. Um, So April 29th, um, I was fortunate enough to be nominated for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel. You know, I don't, you know, I'm just deeply honored to be nominated, you know, but if I'm allowed to speak at all, you know, I'm 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 going to say a few words, and and the book is dedicated to the Sichangu Lakota people. Uh, it's dedicated to my sons and to the, the the Lakota people, and so, you know, that that's really what what I want folks to take away here is just a sense of enlightenment and not you know a sense of guilt. Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, it's certainly not your fault if I feel guilty, um, and and an, a little bit of guilt isn't necessarily a bad thing if it fuels you in maybe seeking out greater knowledge and and being open to or even have, helping to affect some change. Um, but you've written a, a tremendous novel here uh, in its own right. Uh, the fact that there's some some social uh, messaging that that can come to the reader in the process is is uh, uh, certainly a bonus. Um, congratulations on the Edgar nomination. I'm, I'm glad we got to that. Um, that is essentially the Oscar awards for mystery writers. If for those who don't know, um, and, uh, about a month, a uh, month from now, you'll, uh, you'll be either collecting it or clapping for somebody else, but either way, getting nominated is a huge honor. Well, I, again, it's just my first time out of the gate. It's, it's just really, it's, it's overwhelming, you know, and I'm just so grateful to the mystery and crime fiction community for, you know, I didn't know, honestly, if there was going to be a market or, pe- or if people were going to be interested in a crime novel set on a native reservation, because uh, there haven't been a lot of us native crime writers, there have been a handful. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, you know, deeply honored, I believe, after Martin Cruz Smith, who's native, a lot of people don't know that. He he was nominated and, and for the Edgar for best first novel, and I think he got the Grandmaster Award. So I believe I'm the second after Martin Cruz Smith, and to kind of walk in the footsteps of a giant like that is just you know deeply gratifying and very humbling. 
Well, the book is Winter Counts. If you haven't heard of it yet, you've been living under a rock. So climb out from under that rock and give it a look. The author is David Heska Wanbley Wyden. And uh, David, I want to tell you thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was just a really a pleasure to be here and to chat with you. So thank you again. And thank you to all readers and listeners. All right, folks, there you go. David Hesco Wombly Wyden. I, I told you he was articulate. I warned you, didn't I? Um, very knowledgeable. I learned things talking to him that I was not aware of. Um, and I think there's a sort of magic when you can uh, tell a great story and still uh, maybe have some teaching moments in there as well. Uh, additionally, hey, getting nominated for the uh, Edgar Award is a massive honor. So congratulations to David for that. Uh, on our next episode, we are going to talk to Danny Gardner. And uh, Danny was actually one of my very first guests. Uh, he was uh, episode number two, uh, way back in season one in uh, June of 2017. Uh, we had a very long and wide-ranging uh, conversation there. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, you can overlook some of the production values, perhaps, but definitely the content is there. Um, he's going to be on next episode to talk about his uh, new release, Ace Boone Coon from Bronzeville Books. And we talk about a number of things, including how uncomfortable I am using that title. But um, if you know Danny, you know he is never at a loss for conversation. And uh, so tune in next week and you can get some of that. Uh, Zafiro update for you. No new releases. If you're listening to this uh, podcast on the week that it comes out, then the uh, first book in my Jack McCrae mystery series at this point in my life is on sale on Amazon for 99 cents. Uh, if you're not listening to it while it's on sale and it's now full price, sorry you missed out, but um, you can keep up on things like this by following me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, or signing up for my newsletter. I do put things on sale and tell no one but newsletter subscribers at times. Uh, that includes free and discounted books, so there's a good reason to join right there. Um, you can find links to all of this uh, on my website at franksafiro.com. I want to say a big thank you to uh, David Hesco Wombly Wyden for coming on the show. Um, I met him at the BoucherCon in Dallas, the last one that uh, could actually happen live. Uh, we had a conversation while we were both waiting for our Ubers, actually. Uh, and he uh, committed to coming on the show way back then. And of course, then his book blew up. And um, I'm sure he's busier than uh, I'll get out, but he still made the time to come on this uh, niche podcast. And uh, so I want to say thank you for that. Uh, one thing I've noticed about uh, mystery writers is they, their feet don't get off the ground, even if they uh, start to enjoy some mainstream success. I also want to say thanks to Julie, Martin, and Sandra for their book recommendations, uh, to Down and Out Books for being a great sponsor, uh, and of course to you, the listener. You're the one that makes sure that this tree makes a sound when it falls in the forest, so thank you for checking out the show. Uh, I hope you check out uh, some of the recommendations from our authors and uh, give uh, David's book a read. Uh, you will not have any difficulty finding it wherever it is that you like to get your books, I can assure you. Danny Gardner next week. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs> <laughs>